Hello, and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Matt Abel. Squeaky Clean listeners, welcome to the 89th episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, where we bring you the latest in North Carolina clean energy news, policy, and more every two weeks. We're coming at you today at over 200 miles per hour with a guest who's seen her fair share of time behind the wheel of some of the fastest race cars in the world and has used that platform as a way to promote the benefits of clean energy like solar and EVs. But before we hit the track, I wanted to share a quick update with you about the upcoming State Energy Conference. In just a few weeks, the annual State Energy Conference is back and in action at the McKimmon Conference Center in Raleigh from April 25th through the 26th. This is North Carolina's largest energy conference offering content for just about everyone, with tracks ranging from residential homes to renewable energy to utilities and infrastructure. There's a number of sessions throughout this year's conference that are sure to be of interest to many of our listeners, including the Carbon Plan, customer clean energy programs, and federal funding opportunities, to name a few. I know I'll be there at this year's conference, and I hope to see you there as well. To register, make sure to visit ncenergyconference.com. And as mentioned a minute ago, we're joined by an incredible guest today who's experienced her fair share of thrills behind the wheel via some of NASCAR's most competitive circuits. She's been a longtime activist and advocate for clean energy as an EV driver herself, and a rooftop solar customer to ensure that her EV is powered by the panels on her roof. So without further ado, I'd love to introduce today's guest. Clean energy. Clean energy. Our guest today honestly needs very little introduction, as you've probably heard about her through her incredible racing career or from documentary films like Racing Extinction. But for those that haven't, our guest began her racing career in 2001 and worked her way up through the racing circuits to the ARCA series, driving at tracks across the country like Daytona International Speedway and Talladega. She also drove professionally outside of the stock car circuits, even venturing into the IndyCar series as well. Throughout her racing career, she used her vehicles as a platform to promote sustainability and clean energy issues with cars sponsored by solar companies and a memorable car that donned the branding for the Cove documentary. Sports Illustrated named our guest as one of the top 10 female race car drivers in the world. She has even made her way over to the silver screen, where she was featured in the environmental documentary Racing Extinction. In this film, our guest drove a high-performance Tesla Model S all over the world, projecting images on iconic buildings. I won't spoil too much about the film, as we'll talk a little bit more about it later on in the interview. Now, our guest has gone on to be an active advocate for clean energy via direct lobbying and engagement with legislators across the country, through her roles on nonprofit boards, and via some upcoming documentary work as well. So without further ado, I'm excited to introduce Leilani Munter to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Leilani, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. So you yourself have a long history of environmental activism. Was there a specific moment or reason that sparked this passion to speak out on behalf of the environment or sustainability related issues? You know, I feel like I always had an activist inside of me, but I really, when I really started to get vocal 
publicly and using my voice as a driver when I, this is back when I was still racing, that was when an inconvenient truth came out. So it was 2006. So I'd always been really conscious of all these environmental efforts personally to like my friends and my family, but I wasn't you know, putting it on the hood of my race car yet. And it was seeing an inconvenient truth. I, I remember he was my boyfriend at the time now is my husband. We went to see an inconvenient truth in the theaters in 2006. And that was the moment where I felt like I really needed to use my voice as loud as I could, even though, you know, I was just in the lower levels of racing at that time to talk about these issues and to try and communicate with the the racing community that we needed to start paying attention to our human impact on the planet. But I've always been a bit of an activist, I think, since I was a little kid. And and you, you still are wearing the activist hat, even in the interview. Just before we were talking, we were talking about ways to advocate for more rooftop solar throughout the Carolinas. So really excited to, to have you on and talk about your passion in this field and clean energy and your own personal investments in clean energy via electric vehicles and solar, which we'll get to in just a little bit. But as many of our listeners probably know, you've had quite the career in, in racing as well. So what was unique about that time was your ability to find the intersection between racing and activism, as you just mentioned. So can you talk a little bit about the platform that racing afforded you to advocate on behalf of some of these issues that you really care so deeply about? Yeah, I feel like racing opened the door for me to speak on a much larger scale than I would have been able to. So my my degrees in biology, specializing in ecology, behavior, and evolution from UC San Diego. But yes, ironically, it was driving a race car that I think opened you know a lot of doors for me to lobby. I started going to Washington D.C. and lobbying on Capitol Hill for clean energy back in 2008. So it really gave me a voice um, and. I was already kind of the odd one out as a, as a female in a very male dominated sport. So I already didn't fit in. And then on top of that, I was a vegetarian and then I went vegan in 2011. So I already kind of was the oddball and I didn't fit in anyways. So for me to just sort of come out and be completely myself and start talking about animal activism and the environment and solar and animal rights and veganism, it became easier and easier because it wasn't like I was blending in with the garage anyways, <laughs> but it was very unique. You know, I used the last three years of my racing career. I gave away free vegan food at the racetrack. We gave away 30,000 vegan cheeseburgers um, at five races and it was a really successful program. I worked with all kinds of groups promoting um, solar and a hundred percent clean energy future. I worked with a group called the solutions project. I work with a, a solar nonprofit that's called Empowered by Light, and we donate solar and battery systems to places in need. We've done a bunch of systems in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. So I'm still very involved, but I am, you know, it's, it's very clear that it was actually my racing career that helped me um, become a louder activist because I literally had, you know, a 200 mile an hour billboard that was on TV and I could, you know, print sort of my activism right on the side of my car, which is what I did. What was the reception like from your fellow drivers or others in the industry when you were, you know, in the garage advocating for some of these things on the side of your vehicle, like you were talking about? 
Yeah. You know, at first there were a lot of people, especially marketing people, marketing people that are in racing that are trying to get sponsorships. They were like, oh, you can't, <laughs> you're, you are ending your career before it even began because you're eliminating all these groups I can't talk to because, you know, when they would come to me and say, we can help you find sponsorship, I would say, okay, but I don't want to work with anybody that produces any fossil fuels, no meat or dairy products, no companies that test on animals or produce anything with fur or leather. And they were just like, I mean, that's 99% of NASCAR sponsors already fall into that category. So it, it was difficult in that I couldn't really get help from the professional marketing people because I was approaching companies that weren't really in racing. But I, I remember when I was in Open Wheel, when I was racing in the Indy Pro Series, the group that sponsored me was a recycled paper company. And they actually told me, you know, they had wanted to run in the Indy 500, but they came down to the Indy Pro Series level, which is one level below IndyCar, to sponsor me because they wanted a driver that was speaking out about environmental issues and climate change. And so for them, they actually chose me because I was a better fit for the message that they wanted to send. Um, I'm sure, yes, there were companies that I lost because of my activism. And there were some sponsors I walked away from because of the, I didn't believe in the practices that the company was doing. Uh, but, you know, it was a great ride and it was really fun. And a lot of the race fans were more receptive, I think, than people want to give them credit for. I know they, there's a stereotype of, you know, the kind of person that goes to a NASCAR race at Daytona. But I mean, our vegan tent there was one of the most popular tents by far. Um, so I think they surprised me with how much crossover there was and how willing they were to talk about solar power and electric cars. A lot of them really loved my Tesla when I got the Tesla back in 2013. They were still very rare back then. So I would actually bring the car to all the racetracks with me. And I mean, no kidding. Sometimes we would, when we were doing the autograph sessions with the other drivers, we would pull the, the car around to the side so that people could get a look at the electric car because they'd literally never seen one before. Um, so they were really, you know, receptive to all these new things. I think the fact that the car was fun and fast um, didn't hurt because <laughs> they're race fans. Um, but yeah, it was great. It was really fun. I kind of walked the strange bridge of living in these two different worlds and bringing them together. And I can attest there's, there's quite a bit of crossover as a, a NASCAR fan myself. Like I went to a lot of races at Charlotte Motor Speedway. Uh, and when I was living out in California for a little bit, went to, to some races out there and some of the, the best experiences that I've had. And it was really cool. This is, I, I know this is off the topic of electric vehicles, but uh, a while back, I, I was working with uh, some, some different companies and, and found out that, uh, you know, NASCAR itself, you know, a lot of the vehicles were, were powered by American ethanol. And that was just so interesting to me that like the sport that's like, you think about is just like, you know, America and, and racing and, and there are aspects of it where it's like, yeah, we're, we're, we're focused on American ethanol, homegrown fuels. And then even talking about electric vehicles, like you're talking about in the interest of those out there. And, and now I, I talk with a lot of my colleagues and, and friends. It's like, we, we've, we've come into the mainstream when you talk about electric vehicles and, and we'll talk about that in just a little bit, but like thinking about all the Super Bowl ads last year and all the ads now for, for OEMs are EVs. And so it's like, I think you were instrumental in helping to really 
build that support uh, from the beginning with EVs in in the U.S. and and now look where we are. It's really exciting how far we've come. It um, is, it is, and there were and there were uh, drivers and people in the garage that were kind of quietly when nobody else was around, like saying, I think it's really cool what you're doing. I, I totally agree with you, but they would never have come out and said that publicly, but kind of behind closed doors or when, when nobody was paying attention, they would be like, I'm on your team. <laughs> I, I just don't want anybody to, else to know. <laughs> well, and, 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 you know, you know, probably better than anybody is, is how fun it is to, to drive an EV too. So coming from your racing background and in, in NASCAR, how does that experience compare to driving an electric vehicle like a Tesla Model S? Oh, I mean, I'll not, once you go electric, you'll never go back to gasoline. I mean, the the only time I ever sit in a gasoline powered car now is if I'm like traveling somewhere and I have to get a rental car and it feels so clunky and old. Like it's like using a rotary phone after you've been using an iPhone for <laughs> a decade. And then all of a sudden you're standing next to a wall with a wire. It just, they're so, um, they're, they're just so in the past for me. I've been driving the Tesla model S since 2013. So she's just about to turn 10 years old. We also have a model three, which is great. So I'll never, ever drive a gasoline powered car ever again. Um, I think we've done over 109,000 miles in the Model S and probably another 35 or 40,000 in the Model 3 that we got in 2018. And there's so many more choices now, right? Like when I got the Model S, there was basically like the Nissan Leaf or the Tesla Model S. That was the first year that Model S came out was 2012. So they didn't even have the Model 3 you know, they didn't start shipping the Model 3 until like 2018. So there wasn't nearly the choice there is now. Now there's so many electric cars. It's so great. I, I just saw my first Rivian the other day, which looked great. It was at the airport. I saw uh, the Mach-E, the Ford Mach-E Mustang. That looked pretty cool. I was on a bike ride and saw one parked on the side of the road. So it's exciting. Like I'm still, even though I've been driving electric for 10 years, I still, when I see a new electric car, I pull over and check it out. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And uh, my my significant other is, I drive her nuts every time I see, it's like the punch buggy game now, like whenever you see an EV, but now it's so common. It's like all the time, I feel like I'm saying that in the car because I'm so excited to see all those on the road. So, you know, aside from the actual driving experience of getting that instant torque in an EV, are there other benefits that you've seen from from driving an electric vehicle, you know, money that you've saved on gasoline or, or other things that you've noticed right away? Absolutely. I mean, there's no maintenance. You know, I think the only thing that I've done on the Model S in the almost decade that I've had the car now is change the tires <laughs> and maybe refill the, uh, the windshield wiper fluid. <laughs> they're, they're just, there's nothing, you know, in the car really to break. There's so few moving parts in comparison to a gasoline powered car. You look at how many moving parts there are on a gasoline powered car. It's almost amazing that they even work and that things aren't breaking all the time, but you know, the timing belt, the, the, there's so many things, oil changes, you never have to think about any of those things. It's just, it really is sort of like a computer on wheels. It's so cool that you can get over the air updates. 
So, you know, you go to bed at night and I'll get a little alert on the car, you know, display that will say, hey, you know, there's a new update to your software. Do you want to download it now or at two in the morning? And I always select for it to do it in the middle of the night. And you wake up in the morning and there's this little rundown of like the new things that my car can do now that it couldn't do the day before. So that's really incredible. And I, I think back to, you know, driving my Model 3, you know, the, the you know, the Tesla Christmas update that they put out every year. That was the most exciting thing that I was looking forward to during the Christmas season was the, the over-the-air update that they pushed to the vehicle. Um, and it is, it's so fun. It's like having a new vehicle every time one of those updates comes out for it, which is really exciting. And, and so you yourself have, you know, fully embraced clean energy, uh, even beyond an EV with, with PV on your roof. Um, so you've, you've had the experience now from what we were talking about before of installing solar twice. Uh, what's, what's that been like for you and why did you decide to initially install solar? I mean, I had always dreamed of, I wanted to have an electric car and I wanted to power it with sunshine. That just seemed like the cleanest possible way that you could travel. Um, so we got the EV in September of 2013. And then in January, 2014, the solar went up on our roof. This is when we lived in North Carolina. We just recently moved down to South Carolina and had our second solar roof installed, um, used the same group that we used back in Charlotte, uh, Renewable Energy Design Group. They're great. And the one thing that I was really impressed by is at our old house in 2014, we put in 20 panels and the 20 panels with the system back then, it was 4.7 kilowatts. Now I have 25 panels on the roof and we're producing 10 kilowatts. So the efficiency of how much each panel can produce has increased so much that we're, you know, we're almost doubling or we're more than doubling with only five extra panels than we had before. So it's incredible how much more efficient the panels have gotten since we had them put in almost, I guess, nine years ago. Wow. And and they're so sleek looking now, uh, you know, like the panels that you see installed are low profile, all black and oh, there it's, you know, in, in talking to uh, HOAs as an example, right? I think sometimes uh, HOAs have some outdated idea of what solar panels look like from 30 or 40 years ago. And, and now, I mean, they're like, when I see them on a roof, I'm like, oh my gosh, I would absolutely pay extra money for that home. Um, and there are studies from Zillow that show that solar adds 4% to the resale value of a home, which is just so incredible and really cool that you've, you know, full circle charging, charging your vehicle, uh, with solar on, on your roof. Do you have, uh, just out of curiosity, do you happen to have storage associated with that? Or is that something that's kind of on the radar? We don't have storage yet just because financially it was quite a bit extra to get the storage. So we're just on a net metering system here the same way that we were in Charlotte. I have never understood the thing that you mentioned about the HOAs. So we're lucky here where we live, the the south facing roof is facing basically a forest. So, you know, I didn't have to worry about getting uh, approval. The HOA approved it because nobody can see our panels. But it's funny to me that that they try and stop people from putting up solar, sort of 
it's like they're implying that it's an eyesore, but I really, I, I have never seen it that way. When I see solar, I'm excited to see it. I'm like, oh, look, you know, solar panels. Oh, cool. You know, I'm like thumbs up and I'm happy to every time I see it, I've never looked at solar and been like, oh, gee, that's, geez, that really looks unattractive. I mean, it just never occurs to me. So it's so strange to me that HOAs try and stop people from putting up solar based on, you know, it facing the road. I'll never understand that. I know. And it's it's been a, a you know, a challenge and something that, for example, organizations like NCSEA have been really focused on, given that 40% of homeowners in North Carolina live in an HOA governed area. And so there are a lot of people that really do want to install solar uh, that have been that have run into that roadblock. Uh, but we're working on it. And we've been making some good progress here. Because, you know, if you if you want to install solar, you should have the ability to do so. Um, so going I back, think a it little should bit. be it, it should be like the Clean Air Act. It should be across all 50 states. It should be in the same way we have the Clean Air Act, there should be a Right to Solar Act. And it should just all 50 states, rather than having all these little individual battles in every single state, I wish that we could just pass, you know, for all 50 states, look, this is how it works. You cannot stop anybody who wants to put solar on their roof should be able to do that period no roadblocks if anything we should be making it easier not harder because a lot of people i think when they inquire and then they see oh our hoa is saying no they're not going to get into some big fight about it they're just going to give up right there they're busy yeah. they don't have time to go to some big you know battle with their hoa over it so i would love to see that happen if you guys want to team up <laughs> let me know. I think we should try and make it a, a bill for all 50 states. And it sounds like, you know, you've had some of your own experience with HOAs and, and solar in the past. And, and, you know, from your own personal experience, I, it sounds like you really understand how much of a challenge that can be. And so wanting to make sure we make it as easy as possible for people who want to uh, install solar, especially knowing the value that it brings to the home, to their utility bills every month. Uh, and the list goes on and on. Yeah, the other fun thing I noticed, and and this happened when we put in the solar in, in 2014 back in North Carolina, you start to get hyper aware of your energy use. You start to pay attention because when you get solar, there's usually an app where you can look at how much you're producing and then how much you're pulling out, at least if you're doing net metering like we are. And so you you become hyper aware of how much power you're using, you turn things off. It almost becomes like a game where you're competing to try, try and always produce more than you're using. Um, so that's an interesting thing that happens. I think when solar goes up, you just become hyper aware of every time that you're using energy and you always want to produce more than you're using. <laughs> and and what's cool is, you know, you have the ability to monitor that via like your app and and know exactly what your system's producing at any given time. Yep, we're actually on for a record. Our record is right now we're at 46.4 kilowatt hours today. So, and the sun is still shining. So, I think we're going to have a new record. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's incredible. Well, that's that's really cool. So, going back a little bit to, to 2015, you starred in the film Racing Extinction, a documentary bringing attention to the impacts that the human population is having on the natural world and animals across the globe. And 
uh, where the intersection is between that and what we've just been talking about is in the film, you had a chance to drive an outfitted Tesla Model S uh, with a customized projection system to display some some really cool imagery on iconic buildings all across the world. Can you tell us a little bit more about that experience? Yeah, that was amazing. So I was a big fan of a movie called The Cove that won the Academy Board back in 2010. It was made by a group called the Oceanic Preservation Society. And I wanted to raise more awareness about that film that they made. So I began working with Rick O'Berry, who's the main activist in The Cove. Through Rick, I met Luis Sahoyas, who's the director of The Cove. And um, we actually ran a Cove race car at Daytona trying to raise awareness about what was going on with the movie and the connection between the captivity industry um, and the largest slaughter of dolphins in the world. And during the course of, you know, working on those things together, Louie kind of told me, I'm, I have a job for you in the next film, um, but di didn't really tell me what it was. Uh, for a little while, I was guessing what, what, it, what is my job in the next film. So it was, of course, to get them out of trouble before they got into trouble with these projections, because we were projecting on, you know, places like uh, oil refineries, places that we didn't necessarily have we obviously did not have permission to project onto, um, you know, with with information about what we're doing to the natural world. Um, so the cool thing about the car was, well, one, we had a 15,000 lumen projection system that comes out of the back of the car. So I could project very, you know, crisp, beautiful images on buildings that were far away. Um, but we also had a very cool, it was the first car to ever have um, what they call an electroluminescent paint. So I could, with the flip of a switch, um, send an electrical current through my paint. And so the car would be lit up and kind of look like a cuttlefish or like a, you know, bioluminescent creature in the ocean. Um, so I would have that on when we were doing the projection. So when you know, the oil refinery is calling the police to tell them that there's this bright blue car with these things coming off of it that's projecting, you know, I could just flip a switch and instantly just become a gray Tesla sitting on the side of the road and they would be looking for you know, a brightly colored car that was no longer there. So it also had, you know, other kinds of things that had been done to it, which helped me um, hide in plain sight. What happened to the car? Did, did you get to keep the car after production? No. So that car was owned by OPS and they have since sold it. So I, I don't own the car. I never owned the car. I just had the privilege of driving it for a few years. Um, it was such a fantastic ride and we did so many great projections. The one thing that people don't think about that I remember very well is that we can only do projections at night. So I would be coming to work at like five o'clock in the evening and then I would be driving and putting the car away when the sun was coming up. <laughs> so it really messed with my sleep schedule uh, back when we were doing a lot of those projections. How long was the production of that film? I worked on it for four years. Wow. Oh my gosh. What a, what a project. That's Yeah. You know, the Cove took them, I think five years and with post-production uh, racing extinction was a full five years. So 
Those, yeah, they they only last for an hour and a half when you're in the theater, but you'd be surprised how much effort goes into them, especially a documentary where it's not a scripted film. You know, if it's a scripted film, yeah, you could shoot a scripted film in three months because it's all planned out. But with a documentary like that, you know, we were learning the story as we were going along. So like when we first got the car, we didn't know how are we going to get the car to change colors you know, we went through all different kinds of engineering uh, ideas to get the car to do the things we wanted it to do. But it, it took a lot of time. It's a lot of work to make documentaries. Well, I'd highly recommend it if if our listeners have, have not had a chance to see the film. It's Racing Extinction. And I have uh, just the utmost amount of admiration and, and respect for, for the producers and director, of especially The Cove. That was a very, for me personally, was a very uh, instrumental film as well in my own sort of activism career. I remember watching that uh, in a class in college and feeling so moved where I was ready to just run through a brick wall after that and really make a difference. And uh and, and yeah, knowing that you've had a chance to work with that team and creating this film is just really, really humbling for me to be sitting here talking to you about it. I feel so, the same way. <laughs> <laughs> I, I still think The Cove is the, you know, it, it really changed the game with documentaries because it was, it was a documentary, but it was also like a, like a spy film. You know, they were recording things they weren't supposed to record. They were sneaking into places and they didn't know how it was going to turn out when they were making it. So yeah, for anybody who hasn't seen The Cove, um, you should definitely check it out. I still think it's the best documentary ever made. Agreed. And so bigger picture, yeah. What are, what are you most optimistic about when it comes to our clean energy future right now? Having you know been driving an electric vehicle for 10 years, having you know PV on your roof now for going on, what, eight years? Uh, you've seen the industry change quite a bit. What are you most optimistic about now moving forward when it comes to clean energy? There's three things that I feel have reached a tipping point. So there's this great study that was done. I think it was done in like 2011, but it was a group of scientists that wanted to figure out if there was a tipping point for ideas. Is there a point of no return where something takes off and, and the vast majority of people are going to adopt that? And what they found is that if just 10% of a population has an unwavering belief in an idea, it's actually inevitable that the majority of the society will adopt that idea, but it takes a long time to get to that 10%. So it's a very, very slow climb. But the scientists that one of the scientists that worked on that study said the second that it's hit the 10% mark, you could see it take off like a wildfire. Um, so I think we've hit that tipping point with electric cars. I think that's obvious. I don't think I saw a single gasoline powered car commercial. I don't know when the last time I saw one for a gas powered car is it seems like they're all EV commercials now, which was not the case 10 years ago. Solar, it's getting cheaper. It's getting more efficient. Um, and as you mentioned, you've feel like the panels have gotten more attractive <laughs> and they even have now the the ones that almost look like a normal roof that have the shingles. I don't know how efficient, I feel like those are less efficient. So we didn't even consider those, but you know, the fact that there's different kinds of solar that you can have on your roof now is really cool. And then the other thing that I'm actually really hopeful about, and I think you can look at this as being a clean energy thing 
is uh, plant-based foods, right? So meat and dairy products. That's a huge contributor, as you know, from watching Racing Extinction, a huge contributor to our greenhouse gas emissions is coming from the agricultural world and how much energy and how much land is being used and how much water is being polluted and used um, to grow livestock for food. So I have a lot of hope for those three areas. I can't say that that can make up for the fact that we're adding 81 million people net growth to the planet every single year. Um, you know, I've, I was born in 1974. And so the population has doubled in my lifetime from 4 billion to 8 billion. So are we making electric cars fast enough? Are we putting up enough solar panels? Are we having enough of us you know, going vegan or leaning towards a plant-based diet that we can make up for these other things that are happening because there's so many more of us now that I don't know. I'm less sure about the answer to that question. And that's a really important question. You know, I, I will say I, I, I do feel a, a sense of optimism, but you know, you talked about that, that sort of inflection point. And I just saw a report yesterday that was reported on in Canary Media that 84% of all new electricity generation capacity that's going to be added to the grid this year is going to be from renewable sources. So I feel like we've we've really reached that point, but is it fast enough? You know, and that's the 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 question that we've been asking here specifically in North Carolina with the North Carolina Utilities Commission and making sure that we're reaching carbon reduction goals of 70% by 2030 and net zero by 2050. And are those targets even aggressive enough? So we've been advocating really, really hard to make sure that we're deploying as much renewables onto the grid as possible as soon as we can. Um, and it's really interesting, you know, thinking back to talking about your time, you know, at, at Daytona, for example, bringing an EV there and bringing vegan food there, how ahead of its time it probably felt at that moment. But now, like, like you mentioned, going to Burger King and getting an Impossible Whopper and and probably a lot of the people that are driving through the drive-thru are driving something like a VW ID4, a Mustang Mach-E, an electric vehicle, right? So full circle, we're, we're now at that point where it's it's everywhere. The electric cars are simply better than a gas car. There's no denying that. So why in the world would you hold on to the antique ones that are irrelevant when you can have this, you know, much faster, cleaner, less maintenance required version of, of the speed, it, it makes zero sense. So when, when you start to take away all their arguments for holding on to the past, that's when I think we win. I could not agree more. And there's also something to be said of the, the convenience of an electric car, almost like charging your cell phone, just plugging in it every night in your garage. And you will never miss going to a gas station. I promise. Uh, that's one of the things that I have enjoyed so much about driving an EV. So, last question I, I have for you: what's what's next on your your activism radar? Like, what what are you involved in right now in in terms of clean energy and your your sustainability mindset moving forward? Well, I am. I did join the board of Oceanic Preservation Society on the very last day of us filming Racing Extinction. You'll see if you if you watch the movie at the very end of the film, we're projecting onto the Empire State Building. And so that was our last day of filming. And 
uh, at the end of that shoot, Louie walked over and said, you know, we'd like you to join the board of OPS. So I joined the board and I've been now working on a new documentary film with OPS that's about existential risk to humanity. So I've got, <laughs> I've been doing a lot of very depressing research about all the existential risks that humanity faces. Um, and uh, I spent a week over at Cambridge in the UK in the fall um, at the Center for the Study of Existential Risk, interviewing a lot of the scientists that are there, including an amazing man named Sir Martin Rees, who wrote a book called Our Final Century. Um, that is about how basically right now in this time is when humanity is facing greater threats than we've ever faced before, more existential risks than we've ever faced before. Do you do you still get a chance to to make it around the track every now and again behind the wheel of a, a race car or even taking your model model s anywhere to like a drag strip you know what it's funny i have not been to a race track i drove away from daytona in february 2019 after my last race and i and i was actually i was crying cuz i knew i was never going to set foot at a race track again because for me you know, the excitement of being at the track was getting behind the wheel and racing. So I knew I wouldn't probably ever be going back to a racetrack again. So I was, you know, I was driving away and I was driving away for the last time. And I ran, I ran Daytona seven times and went to at least seven tests. So, you know, I'd done a lot of laps at that track. I love that track. There's something very magical about Daytona. Um, but no, I don't really, I have to, I have to be honest. Like I don't watch the races. It's sort of like, I, you know, I knew I was like saying goodbye to that life on that day and I kind of drove away and haven't really looked back. Yeah. It's like a part of it's, it's a part of my life that I loved and I will always treasure, but it's sort of, you know, that ship sailed. Okay. So no, so no surprise appearances in formula E sometime in the near future. Uh, well, oh, well, nope. maybe <laughs> no plans to, although I had, there was a, there was a series that was starting up called the electric GT series that was supposed to be using model S's that they were, uh, taking and turning into race cars into GT race cars. And we actually debuted one of the cars. We unveiled it. It was gorgeous. And then I think they had some sort of accident when they were filming with the car. And I don't know if it ever picked up again. This is like pre-pandemic, right? This is, so this is like 2018, 2019, when they were working on that series. That I think would have been, been an amazing series. And I don't know how, like, I haven't really watched much of the Formula E, but I have heard rumors that NASCAR is working on a possible electric, not a race, but like an exhibition. So it's, you know, I think eventually they will get there, but it's, it's pretty slow going. That's exciting. Nonetheless, uh, seeing more of those EVs out there on the, the racetrack as well to get more people interested. Uh, even though we just saw some of our partners, generation 180 put out this study of EV sentiment amongst drivers in North Carolina. And I think nearly two thirds of uh, drivers on the road are considering an EV as their next vehicle, which is really, really incredible. And so we've seen a groundswell of of, of support. Uh, but seeing those out on the racetrack as well can absolutely help. Well, Leilani, you've been so generous with your time, and we I really, really uh, enjoyed this conversation. And 
hearing more about your own experience with clean energy and exciting to hear that, you know, you yourself have drive an EV and have PV on your roof and are still an advocate for, for those technologies as well. And really excited to uh, keep an eye out for some of uh, your future work and, and uh, some of the documentaries that you're working on now. Uh, but Leilani, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Thank you for having me. What an incredible story from an incredible guest. We are so lucky to have Leilani right here in the Carolinas advocating for clean energy. And beyond her advocacy efforts, she's someone who truly walks the walk with her own Tesla Model S and solar on the roof of her home, which big shout out to NCSEA member Renewable Energy Design Group who installed her PV system. And you know the deal. Let's stay in touch on Twitter. Give me a shout at Matt Abel for future episode ideas, questions for our next episode, thoughts on today's episode, and your worst energy joke one-liners. And episode 89 of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is in the books. But before you leave, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share the pod on whatever platform you're listening in from. Sharing this podcast with your network and growing the friends of the pod helps us get just a little bit closer to our shared vision of a clean energy economy for North Carolina. All right, that's it. See y'all later.